Zen at the Sharp End. Welcome to the podcast about how to turn difficult people and relationships into your best teachers. I'm Mark Westmacket, a Zen Buddhist teacher, mindfulness teacher, and ex-professional astronomer. This is a podcast to go along with my book, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People. In each episode, we'll be exploring different varieties of people, relationships, and situations that we find irritating, difficult, or painful. Together with a number of Zen friends, I'll be discussing how the practices of Buddhism and mindfulness can help us see our difficult people as troublesome Buddhas, our greatest teachers. This podcast is sponsored by Zen Minded. If you get a chance, check them out at www.zenminded.uk. You'll find a curated selection of Japanese homeware and incense, a perfect match to your meditation practice. We're also sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers convenient and affordable therapy online. In my opinion, meditation and psychotherapy both offer valuable avenues for exploring our suffering, habits and stuck areas. A while back I spent three and a half years meeting twice a week with a psychotherapist when things had become acute, and it felt like the help he gave me was really transformational, especially when supported by my regular meditation practice. If you're interested, they've extended an offer of 10% off your first month of therapy at betterhelp.com slash zen at the sharp end. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash zen at the sharp end. My podcast has been going now for a year. Thank you so much to everyone who's listened over this time. I've had the amazing opportunity to share with you interviews with some amazing people, some very inspiring people, all about dealing with their difficult people, how they've come to find wisdom and understanding through difficulty. And I really hope you've enjoyed those podcasts and got a lot out of them. Um, We've got some great ones, great people lined up for next year. So really looking forward to 2023 and and some more inspiring people and uh, ways uh, to help you to deal with your difficult people. Now, in this episode, I thought I'd take the opportunity to do a bit of a Christmas special and talk a bit myself about a particularly thorny area of practice, and that is spending time with family. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit from my own experience and um, from what I've heard speaking to other people. Um, and from from both of those angles, I'm... I'm absolutely certain that family members can be some of our biggest troublesome Buddhas, some of our most difficult people. And um, Christmas is a time when we typically see a lot of family, and so there's a lot of potentially troublesome people or troublesome encounters to be had over that period. One survey I found says that half of people predict some kind of family squabble on Christmas Day. So I think uh, most people would say if you're going to spend time with family over Christmas, there's going to be some difficult points, potentially on Christmas Day, but potentially around that time. So, you know, we, we it's important and uh, really worthwhile spending a bit of time thinking about that and um, preparing ourselves for um, learning from those those um troublesome moments. I mean, we, we can't make them go away. We can't avoid them. 
uh, or we can bury our head in the sand, I suppose. But if we're going to be spending time with family, then there will be moments that will be more difficult than others. So it's more about just um, changing our perspective on how that might be. So I think Christmas time gives us many, many excellent opportunities to learn and grow from those troublesome encounters. Now, I, I um, put this quote in my book, uh, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People, um, in the family section. There's a wonderful quote um, by um, the, the famous spiritual teacher, Ram Dass. He said, if you think you're enlightened, go spend a week with your family. So I think, uh, you know, he understood and realized just how difficult it can be being with family. And um, in a sense, you can be as enlightened as you like. Um, but putting it into practice and uh, being there with and family typically are very, very practiced at pressing your buttons and knowing how to get under your skin. So uh, we spend a week with our family and we find all of our well-earned insights suddenly fly out the window. So what can we do? The other thing is, I, I know it can be troublesome over Christmas in a different way if you don't have family or are abroad, away from family, or perhaps if you usually spend um, Christmas avoiding festivities because of some kind of past painful experiences. Um, so, you know, there's there's a lot of ways in which Christmas time can be quite troublesome and difficult for people. And um, there's, there's lots of grist for the mill there, for sure. Mm. Now, in my own experience, um, my family has been very small. Um, so from age 13 onwards, uh, when my stepdad was killed in a car accident, it was just my mum, my sister and me. And we had some, uh, well, my mum's sister and her family were not too far away, but we'd seen them a bit. But generally, it was just the three of us, mum, my sister and me. And, um, you know, over that period where you're together, uh, relations, relationships can be uh, very undiluted, like... Um, so, you know, if you have a big family, the relationship between different people can be diluted by the fact that you're you're talking to this person and that person and, and the other person. But if there's just three of us, um, it was very undiluted and made it very intense over Christmas when we were spending time together, uh, a lot of time together with, with much less activities going on. And of course, it was full of, you know, certain expectations and cultural shoulds and shouldn'ts that um, I think bore down on us all from you know, various different places. Um, and I think, you know, having a small family is difficult, but I also know that having a big family can also have its own problems and uh, lots of demands and things. So this is just my own personal experience. Uh, my mum was in a wheelchair. So after this car accident, my, my stepdad was killed. My mum ended up in a wheelchair. And, um, you know, she also had some very traditional views of what about what Christmas should be and how we should be around that time and how we should all be together. And, um, so I think that sort of played in, in, into it all there. Uh, my, my sister over the years since that accident, my sister became very emotionally bound to my mum, whereas I ended up sort of distancing myself very much from it and like cutting myself off emotionally. Like we had two polar opposite, um, um, 
approaches, I suppose, to dealing with that kind of trauma and difficulty. Uh, I, I distanced myself and I, I cut myself off. So I kind of arrived back, you know, like, let's say, for example, like I was at university and I'd arrived back for Christmas time into, a, you know, what, what was sometimes a little bit of a tense situation, the two of them and then me arriving with my kind of distanced emotions. And, and I'd you know, partly try to shut it out, maybe not engage with, with, um, I don't know, with the two of them and with the, the, the Christmas sort of scene, I don't know, at home, that kind of thing. So I kind of sh- shut things out to some extent. And as we got older, um, mum always wanted us to be together for Christmas, but, um, you know, some years we'd have other wishes or maybe pulls from, you know, um, other partners or partners family that we want to be with them and things so that was in the mix as well um and it was really only in the last few years before she died so she died now four years ago and um um you know i spent some time reflecting on how mum and christmas was such a, a troublesome buddha for me there was lots of difficulty and pain and suffering bound up in it um you know, mum certainly had very strong expectations of us, which I understood originated from her upbringing and also were were bound up in her disability. Like, for example, you know, she couldn't go for a long walk, which, you know, over Christmas might be something that people do. And in fact, it was something that we wanted to do. Go for a long walk, go to the forest or go along the beach and things like that. And so often there was just lots of sitting around um, because she couldn't leave the house so easily. Um, or we'd have to leave her at home and then we'd go for a walk, which was also like had its own stresses about that. I mean, another factor of her disability meant it was very difficult for her to come and visit other family members and friends. Sometimes their house would be totally inappropriate. It would be, you know, up steps or maybe they didn't have a toilet she could use. And, you know, visiting was one thing, but certainly staying for a few days with someone um, was almost impossible with her being in a wheelchair. Um, So people would have to come to her uh, or come to us you know because of that disability which which added a whole nother level of stress and um, when there were different parts of the family we wanted to visit and i'm sure she wanted to visit too but was limited by this this um this disability so for me it was a lot of it was about letting go of my expectations and wants for her to be someone else letting go of uh, my expectations for her to be someone who would go for a walk and to be someone who could visit other people. Like, I, as much as I wanted that to happen, as much as she wanted that to happen, it was just, the situation was too difficult. It was too difficult. So then I couldn't do anything about it. And then it became this practice of, okay, I've just got to let go of wanting that you know and then it became i don't know like it could be like a a sort of grieving process i suppose for um the person that the situation that i wanted and then when you realize that's never going to happen just letting it go and then kind of grieving for that mourning for that that and then you know you come out the other side and you're in a different place the other thing i found was quite useful was managing the length of time i spent with her over Christmas, um, so that it m- stayed pleasant for both of us, you know. So it felt long enough. She, f- we felt we could uh, connect and be together and you know uh, enjoy each other's company. 
but it wasn't so long that I'd get frustrated and, and, um, you know, um, sense the difficulty around it. So I, I would typically arrange other things to do when I was staying with her, go out and visit some other friends. So it was less intense. And then, you know, limiting the amount of time I was there, I was there so that it would, it would kind of hit that sweet spot, I suppose. And from speaking to a different other, uh, different friends and things, uh, I, I get the sense that that's something that often people find very helpful is to, to manage their time to find the sweet spot. Maybe it's like half a day or maybe three days or maybe, you know, something like that. That's just going to feel manageable. That keeps it pleasant on both sides and doesn't become too frustrating. So that we can enjoy our time together. And, and we very much, you know, ended up being able to enjoy Christmas together. Um, and, and, and developing and learning and evolving from, the reflections that came up over the years when it, when it sometimes became quite difficult, um, you know, in, in the more in the past. So Christmas can give us a few undiluted days with our family. And, um, perhaps we don't get to see this family at any other point in the year. So, um, sometimes we see distant parts of the family. Sometimes we see parts of the family, which, um, I don't know, uh, we find particularly difficult. We only manage to see them one time of the year or whatever. Um, also people close to you, like parents and siblings, uh, siblings, especially have a very special talent at finding and repeatedly pressing your buttons. It's almost like the definition of growing up with a sibling is that they, find and really become specialists at pressing your buttons and can, can know how to how to get to them very fast um so you know um there's, there's lots there right so whether we're with distant family who can also press your buttons quite effectively maybe there's some history there or whether we're with close family who really kind of know how to press those buttons even with the best intention sometimes um those buttons can get pressed and it's really, it's the closeness of the relationships and also the, the shared history stretching right back to, you know, early times, far back as you can remember sometimes, that can make things really, really difficult to navigate and to know what to do for the best. And so what do we do? Mm. So I often give the example of seeing your uncle and getting subjected to the same old tirade about, quote, the state of the world, right? This is an example, right? You sit down with your uncle and, um, you know, after a cup of tea and a mince pie, um, he starts chatting on about the state of the world and you just get so irate and frustrated with listening to the, the same old stuff every time. With a bit of reflection, you might recognize that when your uncle launches into this usual monologue, you always, um, you know, metaphorically, you always put up your fists and try to set him straight, right? So he's got his views, you've got your views, and, you know, you don't agree with what he's saying, and you start to clench, clench your body and um, um, try to set him straight, which inevitably leads to raised voices and eventually total exasperation. So in my book, uh, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People, I call this the anger aversion pattern, um, where you, you're, you're sort of averse to the situation and your response is to get angry, is to sort of fight back. Mm. Or perhaps you've noticed that you often, you know, listen to his 
tirade and you tend to go quiet and then hold back the rising head of steam until you find a way to excuse yourself, get out of the situation. And that, in my book, I call the aversion avoidance pattern. So you're still averse to the situation, but instead of getting angry, you end up avoiding. So this is our habit patterns. This is our tendencies. These are the ways in which we have learned to deal with difficulty, to avoid pain. And, and you know, we all have those patterns. Sometimes we default one way and other people default the other way. When the emotional heat rises, it always gets harder to stay consciously aware of your sensations and remain able to choose how you respond. So normally we react and it becomes harder and harder as the emotional heat rises to choose how to respond. And that is what's known as becoming emotionally dysregulated. So it becomes harder and harder to choose how to respond and our sort of instinctual, habitual, patterned reactions kick in. That's when we become emotionally dysregulated. And as we lose that awareness, as our habitual reactions take over, we basically fall back into our well-trodden grooves of habit reactivity. So maybe as your uncle settled into his chair, you said to yourself, this year, I won't react. But then, I don't know, as he he made his same point for the third time, just something snapped. And you know that next thing you know, you're in another shouting match. So that's it. That's the point where the emotional heat has risen to the to the level which we we just can't stay emotionally regulated. And, you know, that point where we snap and we're shouting, and we've basically fallen into these well-trodden grooves of reactivity. So I'd like to offer six things that might help. Number one, don't eat so much. And, and I'm serious when I say that. So over Christmas, you know, it's a time of a lot of eating and... Um, you know, particularly Christmas Day, we said a lot of people predict that Christmas Day is going to be the crunch point, you know, and um, basically when your digestion is consuming all of the spare energy in your system, you've got less available to stay emotionally regulated. And, you know, um, you might say, oh, well, what, what's, what's digesting food got to do with where my brain is at? But actually, when our body is a system, you know, and there's certain energy gets taken in different directions, you might say, like, actually, it's blood flow. So uh, uh, we've eaten a huge Christmas dinner and suddenly the belly is full of blood. You know, the, the, the digestive processes are doing their thing. And a lot of the blood is drawn down that that way. And some of the energy that we need to stay on top of our emotions, to stay kind, to stay aware of what's going on, is kind of drawn in a different direction. So we need all the spare energy we can get to stay emotionally regulated, kind, compassionate, understanding of our difficult family members. So, you know, not saying don't eat, but just don't eat loads to the point where you just, you know, you just collapse in a slumber because often, often that is the point where, you know, your tensions are, are afraid and temp- temp- tempers afraid and, uh, um, you know, your wick is a bit short at that point. Number two, 
set an intention to see difficult family members, difficult people as your teachers. So this is a theme all the way through my book and all the way through the podcast. It's the intention to see people you find difficult as teachers. And I think even the concept of a difficult person being a troublesome Buddha, if you hold that concept in mind, it can make a massive difference to the outcome of any kind of difficulty. This person can show me something about myself. This encounter can show something about myself. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but just that idea. Number three, cultivate an awareness and sensitivity to your body sensations when the emotional intensity is manageable, low, basically, and distractions are minimal. So, um, I mean, it might be through a regular practice of some kind of embodied discipline, like mindfulness. So practicing mindfulness or doing some yoga, doing some stretching. Cultivating an awareness and sensitivity to your body when things are calm and easygoing. And try to do something like this over the Christmas period. I, I know it can get tough when there are so many time pressures and things are busy and lots to do. And you know, But trying to keep a thread of something going over this period can make a huge difference. Just stay in touch with your body because that's where the signals are going to come from that the emotional heat is rising and your fists are clenching or you're withdrawing or whatever your habit might be. The body is going to tell you. The body is going to give you those signals. And if we're aware of them, then we can start to make different choices and respond. Concentrating also, concentrating on how you physically feel will help you avoid getting caught up so much in all the storylines of, of who said what and what happened and the histories and, and all the baggage that comes along with it. Number four. Watch for those moments when you fall into the hardened you're wrong and I'm right mindset. See if you can develop a willingness to entertain even the possibility that you may not wholly be in the right or indeed that there even is a right. Particularly if you're in an argument with someone there may not even be a right situation, a right stance, yeah? So remember, the difficulty relies in the relationship between you and the other person, between you and your family member, not just in the other person. The difficulty is in the space between, in the relationship. Number five, try to look past the troublesome behavior to see the person behind it. So we all have our default behavior patterns, our habits, our deeply grooved um habit patterns and they've all arisen because of our past experiences and we're all individuals we've all had our own difficult pasts so you know people including your family members are all just usually just trying to do their best they're trying to get through it right <laughs> or they're trying to enjoy themselves you know trying to um relate and and get on so kind of like looking past the difficult behavior and seeing that there is a person behind it with their own history and baggage and experience and and you know and number six cut yourself some slack dealing with difficult people is at the advanced end of mindfulness 
And dealing with difficult family members, well, I think that's possibly the hardest aspect of practice there is. This is really tough. Remember, there is never a correct response to any given situation. Sometimes patience and tolerance is important. Sometimes asserting boundaries is important. Sometimes, even with the best of intentions, we mess up. We say something or do something that's hurtful, perhaps even multiple times. Mindfulness is about doing our best to be non-judgmental and non-critical. Seeing things clearly for what they are. Remember that when we set an intention to be kind, that also means being kind to yourself. So that's six different ways in which I hope, you know, we can bring a little bit more wisdom, a little bit more uh, clarity, insight, kindness to our Christmas time and dealing with uh, difficult family members. Now, I thought I'd also bring in here um, a little bit, a couple of examples from the Buddha. And, um, you know, the Buddha grew up in a family, had a family, and by the accounts that we read, he also had some difficult members of those families, of that family, um, especially his parents and uh, a particular a cousin that we were going to mention. Now, his father was named uh, Suddhodana, and he was the leader of the Shakya state in northern India where the Buddha was born. So he was born with the name Siddhartha. And as he was growing up, Suddhodana assumed he would take over from him and become the next leader. So he gave the young Siddhartha a very coddled, pampered upbringing. And this is a very traditional story of the upbringing of the Buddha. Lived in a palace which protected him from pretty much every danger or negative negative aspect of life. So, um, the traditional accounts go he he had never seen um, a person who was old. He'd never seen a person who was ill. He'd never seen anyone die. He'd never seen anyone who was ugly. You know, he was always coddled and protected from any kind of negative aspect of life. And you could say his parents were very, very coddling, pampering him to the extreme. So at some point when the young Siddhartha wanted to leave the palace and become a wandering ascetic and, and find out basically who he really was, his father refused. No, you can't go off. You know, this is your place. We've created this wonderful place for you. You've got to stay here. No, no, we're not going to allow it. So then Siddhartha had to escape under the cover of darkness without even saying goodbye in order to go out into the wilderness and learn meditation, find his own way, find who he really is and had his you know enlightenment experience and go on to become now what we call the Buddha. I think we can all see how an overprotective parent or parents refusing to let their child follow their dreams for perhaps some kind of fear of them coming to harm or perhaps disappointment in not in them not fulfilling the path they'd set out for them as a real sign of a of a troublesome buddha you know if we think about our own parents 
Are parents refusing to let their child follow their dreams for fear of them coming to harm? I mean, absolutely understandable, totally understandable. We can step into any parent's shoes and, and see that that is, you know, very valid. Or, or indeed, a disappointment in them for not fulfilling the path that they had set out for them. You know, I know many friends who have parents who have issue, basically issues with their parents because their parents had set them a path and expected them to follow that path. And actually, that's not what they wanted to do. You know, they, they wanted to go off and do something else. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But either way, it can cause a lot of problems. So the Buddha, his his father in particular, maybe both his parents were were troublesome people for him. Another troublesome family member for the Buddha was his cousin, Devadatta. So here's a bit of backstory. So Devadatta was ordained as a monk along with his brothers and friends and for a time was a highly respected monk within the Buddha's community, within the Sangha. Now as time went on, Devadatta's practice went on. He developed certain powers of the mind and these powers can be very seductive. Actually, we learn in Zen, um, you know, for all of us, actually, these these kinds of um, places can be very, very attractive, you know. And, um, well, what kind of powers? You know, when we start to, when our mind becomes extremely clear, then we start to see um, little subtle aspects of what's going on in other people. We start to see other people in different ways. You know, uh, traditionally, it's kind of uh, um, being able to see the future, uh, you know, all those kind of weird, um, um, I don't know, strange aspects of meditation. Anyway, so he, he got quite good at this, right? And he said, he said within the stories that Devadatta became a little bit corrupted, uh, by these special powers. Maybe we can make a kind of parallel here with Star Wars, because there's something a little bit illustrative there. So in the parlance of Star Wars, you might say he went over to the dark side. So his motivation essentially shifted from one of wisdom and enlightenment and compassion to one of developing his own supernatural powers. Or at least that's the way it's portrayed, you know, in the stories. Right? So Devadatta attempted to undermine the Buddha on a number of occasions. Once he claimed the Buddha was too old and suggested he take over running the, the Sangha, the community. But it's recorded the Buddha rebuked Devadatta harshly, saying he was not worthy. Now, on hearing this, it seems the Sangha questioned how such a harsh response could be justified as right speech. And of course, right speech is one of the practices of the Eightfold Path. So the community questioned the Buddha. Why are you so harsh? And the Buddha compared his reaction to Devadatta to a small child who got a pebble into his mouth and was about to swallow it. So he suggested the adult would naturally do whatever he took, whatever it took to get the pebble out of the child's mouth, even if it meant drawing blood. Meaning, in Devadatta's case, he thought it was better to speak harshly and potentially hurt his feelings than to let him stay deluded over who was the right leader of the, the community. Now, it's, it's kind of difficult to read between the lines of these, these old stories, but it sounds to me like even the Buddha might have struggled, at some level, struggled to stay on top of his emotions, stay emotionally regulated, and, de- and deal with Devadatta without 
at some point, at some level, losing this kind of regulation. Yeah. So, um, you know, these kind of harsh words, right? So perhaps, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm reading between the lines. Perhaps the Buddha struggled a little bit there. It's also possible, of course, that he was just, you know, doing his best to respond by being direct and assertive. And that just to other people listening in, that came across as harsh, right? I mean, they've got their own relationship. The Buddha and his cousin, maybe this harshness, maybe he knew that Devadatta wouldn't take it harshly. Or maybe he knew he did. I mean, uh, who knows, right? So ultimately, and unfortunately, this strong approach from the Buddha didn't really work because Devadatta became increasingly jealous and actually tried to kill the Buddha on several later occasions. So, for example, once he rolled a boulder off a hill aiming at where the Buddha was walking, and although it didn't actually kill him, it did actually cause him some physical harm. And then on another occasion, and another story, apparently he intoxicated an elephant and incited it to charge at the Buddha, but luckily, the Buddha was able to pacify the elephant in time. So Devadatta was certainly another deeply troublesome person for the Buddha. Um, lots and lots of uh, grist for his mill in terms of uh, working out how to deal with the, with him and, and um, coping with him. Yeah, so just a little example. I mean, the Buddha was certainly not immune to this either. He, he had difficult family members. So... Um, Whatever the individual cocktail of difficult family members you expect to see over Christmas or, or not to see, I wish you all the energy you need to stay in touch with the uh, the mix of emotions and sensations that are going to come up over that time. And I really hope that you manage to dodge the rolling boulders and charging elephants and uh, and manage to find a way of acting from a place of compassion, insight and kindness. I often find I come back to this question, what's the kindest thing to do for all parties concerned? And uh, including yourself, myself in that question. Like if we're struggling to know what to do, what's the kindest thing we can do for all parties involved? Difficult people are absolutely some of our best teachers on this spiritual path when we open our eyes to them. And if you want to read a bit more about dealing with difficult family members, then do please get a hold of my book, Zen and the Art of Dealing with Difficult People. I've got a whole section on dealing with family and some very heartwarming and inspiring examples from other people I interviewed around how they dealt, have, have, have found um, a lot to learn from their family members. So I wish you a very merry period of encountering a broad range of troublesome Buddhas and I wish you a great many insights to arise from them. Now take care and I'll see you in the new year. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and a star rating on whatever platform you use. And do recommend it to others because we all have difficult people in our lives and each of them offers us a real opportunity for learning and growth. For more information about my book and what else I offer, head over to my website, markwestmaquette.co.uk. Thanks so much for listening. Bye for now. <laughs>